0: Today's guest on the podcast is Ulrich Boser. He's the author of the new book Learn Better: Mastering the Skills for Success in Life, Business and School or How to Become an Expert in Just About Anything. That sounds like a really great idea. So this past summer, I decided that I would re-enroll in college, and I started taking a few classes, and I ended up dropping out before drop-ad was over because, I mean, there was many reasons. One was time constraint, but the the second thing that really kind of struck me was school was never that – painful for me. And this this process with to going to school as an almost 40 year old was like so painful. And I really was excited about learning. But I couldn't seem to connect the dots and make it happen for myself. And when I just read this book, I thought, man, this book would have been helpful like four months ago if I'd read it. Because I think what I was relying on was sort of my old methods of learning maybe in college when I had a lot of free time, and things were just different. And And um, the tools in this book and the research behind it are very fascinating on how we can learn in a way that is most effective and what motivates us to learn and the factors behind that. So I totally enjoyed this conversation and I hope you all do too.
1: Welcome to the same 24 hours podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success.
0: Hi everybody. Welcome to another episode of the same 24 hours podcast. I'm your host Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Ulrich Boser. How are you?
1: I'm doing well.
0: Awesome, awesome. So you are the author of the new book, Learn Better. What inspired you to kind of study learning?
1: That's a great question. Um, really, the answer starts with my own childhood. I really
0: doesn't everything a lot. start with childhood. Does... <laughs> <laughs> All of our stuff. <laughs>
1: Freud would be so so proud of our little conversation, That's right. right? That's right. Yeah, I just I struggled a lot with learning as a child. I uh, managed to repeat kindergarten. I spent some time in special education and have long been just fascinated with how people learn. And there's just so much new and fascinating research on it that really changes the way that we think about learning. Decided to dig in and and share a little bit of that news uh, with this book.
0: So what was childhood like for you? I mean, what what was, did you have, were you diagnosed with a learning disability? Like, what was the struggle as a child, like, with learning for you?
1: Yeah, so I was ultimately diagnosed with a learning disability. I think some of it was also just, I didn't really know how to learn. I feel like we're told often things. Like people have learning styles, which turn out not to be true. A lot of people tell you, oh, you know, you should use highlighters, not a lot of evidence for them. And so I struggle a lot with learning, but it also sort of developed this passion for, you know, how do we learn? I think like many of us, you de- design your own little life hacks um, to, you know, get better at at, at learning. And, um, you know, it, it ultimately really made me think about, you know, what what is this process really, really like?
0: Yeah. What have, what have you learned, (laughs) Learn. There's a lot of puns here, right? (laughs) Yep. What have you learned about yourself in this process?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, when I think about what have I learned about myself, I had, what I wanted to do in part with the book was also apply a lot of the lessons myself. So I did that in a number of ways. Some was you know i I play basketball with a bunch of other middle aged guys, and I was like, "Okay, you know now's the time to to get better at this, and so I ended up hiring a basketball coach and trying to take many of the lessons that I describe in the book and and try and you know, use them in in real uh life. What was also surprising to me is it also made me realize just how hard it is to make these types of changes and even after i wrote the book, realized, oh, you know, it's hard to make these types of of changes in in your life. And, you know, I even found myself not uh, applying some of the the lessons because I think they they are hard and and counterintuitive.
0: Mm -hmm. What is our educational system in America doing right and what are they doing wrong? (laughs) (laughs) another podcast entirely but like when you have a group of kindergartners yep and they're you know they're fresh and and cute and they're eager and sticky and what what do you Uh what is what are the teachers doing correctly what are the education system doing correctly with these kindergartners these fresh little babies of learning and what and what is still getting missed right now
1: sure so when I think about one of the main principles uh, that I talk about in, in the book and really become very apparent in the literature is that learning is, is active. And when I say active, I mean, I, I don't mean in the way uh, that we think about, you know, active in terms of, of sports, but that anything we can do cognitively, whether we're learning Spanish or chemistry or a new Excel, you know, pivot table technique the more that we can engage, uh, the better off that we are. And this is one of the reasons that highlighters are not very uh, effective learning tools, or why rereading is not a very effective learning tool. We would be much better off quizzing ourselves, explaining something to a friend, because we have to be more cognitively engaged. So when I think about that principle, uh, I'm going to schools often I I do see teachers asking a lot of questions. Uh, You see this in elementary schools as well as high schools. But you don't see teachers giving students enough time to really do that heavy cognitive work, which is kind of thinking about your answer and then responding to it. Mm -hmm. So often teachers just move really quickly where you're asking a lot of questions and then not really giving people the time to to think about it. And I mentioned earlier, you know, how I hadn't uh, realized just myself, you know, how hard it is to put these uh, ideas to work. I was practicing for a speech recently, and I I was like, okay, I got I to gotta get ready for this thing. And <laughs> I know this feeling. You know this feeling? <laughs> so I go into a room by myself. I'm like, you know, lumbered in there, and I had my <laughs> notes in front of me, and I noticed myself like rereading my notes, just rereading the notes when I would be much better off putting the notes away. Once I had a, a broad sense of what I was going to be talking about, and just really pulling it from memory, because that's a, a more active... Way of learning the the speech, right? You really kind yeah. of pushing yourself to to do it, and we don't do that. Why? Because you know you're going to stumble a lot more, you're going to feel more uncomfortable. But that type of um, kind of real uh, difficulty is uh, is far more effective.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting about about giving talks. I mean, that is everyone's, <laughs> of nightmare, right? Standing up in front of a crowd, and and we do tend to rely. Like all of a sudden we have this we have this area of expertise, but then all of a sudden we think ourselves idiots or something, and we need these note cards to talk about the things we already know. Um, but what is it about having that? And this may be a rabbit trail that's not even you know important to what we're going to talk about here. But what is it about having like the, the security blanket of? of an outline or something when you really know what you're talking about what what is have you learned anything about kind of public speaking and and how to kind of learn that art a little bit better yeah
1: so I think one thing that I would really emphasize for people is it's it's helpful to have note cards we all want safety blankets but when you're practicing for that talk nothing is better than to start at the beginning and give the whole talk in a room by yourself without those note cards because that act of really you know doing it is really important for for memory mm-hmm. there is even a, a theory among psychologists we can't prove this without question but a, a theory that We never forget anything that you might even know somewhere in the deep, dark recesses of your brain, you know, the color of the shoes that your kindergarten teacher wore on that first day. What makes a difference is when you pull something out of memory. And the more you pull it out of memory, the more it sort of stays top of mind and not kind of buried in that attic. And, you know, if if we think about learning in that way, and certainly our memory in that way becomes, you know, I think it it helps underscore this idea that you want to get things out of the attic and the more that you get them out of the attic in your mind the more you have access to them and the more that you can recall and speak fluently to them and to a degree this is a good thing right we want to remember where we put our cell phone this morning right not where we put it you know 2 weeks ago mm-hmm. even though we tend to forget that that too so that you know, staying on top of forgetting, um, you know, even something that you might know well, um, you know, just refreshing your memory, I think, is also another really good thing for uh, giving speeches. And then practice. And what does practice mean? You know, just doing something isn't the same as learning. Uh, so, you know, can you give that speech while using your cell phone to film yourself so you can really get a, a better sense of where your ticks and habits are? Maybe give that speech in front of some friends uh, who can also give you give you feedback. I think it's easy to remember that we we often lie to ourselves about what we're good at, what we're bad at. And confronting <laughs> so that, I think, is, is really, really important.
0: Um, you mentioned, I think, early on that what we know about learning methods or how best to learn is wrong. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so some of it we've, you know, just briefly mentioned, but the big one that I come across is learning styles. So a lot of people believe that some people are visual learners and some people are auditory learners. And there's really no evidence for it. Part of the issue is that we have really a lack of language for how the how people are different. And and I want to be clear, people are totally different. I don't think we really need science to say, yeah, some people <laughs> have different personalities, some people might have different levels of intelligence, some people just are, are more passionate than others. But when we think about learning something, so if you want to get better at, you know, say, biking, listening to a lot of biking podcasts, they might help, but ultimately you're going to have to get on that darn bike and and really practice and, and pedal, whether you're a, a visual or auditory or kinesthetic learner. And so what I think is more important is to acknowledge, Hey, we're all different. And it really depends on the topic that you're learning, uh, whether it's, you know, Shakespeare or basketball to really kind of delve into that and, and get feedback and to be an active learner is, is really the, the key aspect.
0: One of the things I love in your book is when you're talking about um, one of the aspects, which you you go into, I think, six aspects of learning, one of them is value that you have, if you're going to learn, you pretty much need to think what you're learning has some sort of value to your life. But one of the things I really liked was your angle about like social aspects of learning and that... Um, like a sense of drive and ambition can jump from person to person that mental effort and a desire to learn is contagious. And I thought that was so interesting. It kind of goes to the theory that you are who you hang around with, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a a great point. I think, you know, we live in a culture that really values individualism. And I think a lot of people, you know, see themselves as, you know, uh, existing, you know, really separately from other people, and I think we're a lot more like bees and, and ants, these really communal creatures, than we think. I mean, and to a degree, society recognizes this, you know, besides putting someone to, uh, to death, you know, what is the worst penalty? It's solitary confinement. In other words, it's just not being with other people. And other people make us happier, they make us more motivated, and they can be. Um, you know, incredible, uh, uh, motivators to getting work, work done. And some of that is just, you know, having someone to talk to some of that is just being around other people and, and feeding off of their desires. Uh, one of my, my favorite studies on this is they once tested people to see how long they could hold their hands in, in ice water, Mm-hmm. And it turned out that just if you held someone else's hand, even if it was a stranger, you would be able to withstand the uncomfortableness of, of holding your hand in ice water, at least in a lab study. Then uh, if you didn't, I thought, it's, you know, it's just a nice example of how much uh, other people support us in uh, what we want to get done. And, and that's true um, no matter what the what the domain is.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I haven't I don't think I've heard that study. Um, I heard the the crab in the bucket study. <laughs> Actually, I was, I don't know I if that's a the cra- study. The
1: crab in the bucket sounds more fun.
0: <laughs> You've heard that, though. Like, if you have a bunch of crabs in a bucket and one tries to get out um, to escape, that all the others will pull it down. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to, like, it's really hard to get out of the crab bucket once you're in there. And it's better just not to get in there at all.
1: <laughs> I, I, I do. I do like that. I, There's I, probably no
0: science in that one, though
1: there's no science in that one, but a lot of wisdom.
0: Right, right. Um, One of the things also I like um, that you write about is self, um, like in your self belief and how mental imagery, I mean, for a long time, I I just kind of intuited that if I believed I I could do something, then I probably could. Like, I don't know where this came from. I just figured it was worth a shot. And it's something that I've adopted. And when I set a goal, I just start acting like, this goal has already happened. <laughs> you know, I kind of just believe it. And what has the research shown about, I don't want, I want to call it positivity because I think that's not necessarily what it's the same thing, but like mental imagery and seeing what you want to learn and seeing what you want. Like, what does the research say about that?
1: Yeah. So when we talk about mental imagery at one very narrow way to define it. We see a lot of athletes do this. Um, I think you see it often in uh, the Olympics and skiing where you see individuals trying to imagine what it would be like going down um, a, a, a course. Uh, so going down that, that that hill or mountain and they imagine it in their own minds. And we can use those techniques. They are a, a helpful way to uh, to practice to get us into the um, mode of things in part because uh, we're such visual creatures and imagining things in our minds allow us to try and think of that. And it can also be really beneficial in terms of uh, setting an example and sort of imagining yourself crossing the finish line, achieving what you want to achieve because it, it gives you a really discreet, clear goal to work on. I think oftentimes we, set, uh, aspirations for ourselves, whether it's, you know, losing weight or learning Spanish. And it's like, wow, how do I, how do I get started? And so first trying to picture, you know, what you're going to look like at the end of that six months, uh, or however long it takes you to do that. And then trying to figure out, you know, what are those baby steps that at least get you started there that Mm -hmm. make that big crazy goal less, uh, less scary.
0: Yeah. Why is learning a language so hard as an adult? <laughs> um, like I, I every year I sit down and I'm like, this is the year I learn Italian. This is the okay. year I learn Spanish. And then I download one of the apps and I get to chow and I'm done. Like I just, that's I, all I can remember. And, and what I, what
1: happens? Do you, do you just feel like you're like ah, uh, you lose interest, or is it seeming a little hard, or how, how do you? Uh, what, what's I, what, what's the what's the thing that knocks you out?
0: I think. if I'm honest with myself, I really don't care that much. I I think that the value to me is not there. That's the only thing I can figure because I think, oh, it would be nice to speak another language if I travel or, but there's not really any pain point. I think I'm very much motivated by pain, (laughs) (laughs) that there has to be like a real reason or I'm going to experience pain if I don't learn something. And so I think that Honestly, that's probably it for me. I, I don't know, or or it's either this is going to take way too long.
1: <laughs> sure, you know, I think what's interesting to me about languages is when it comes to learning is that it's one of the few things that is truly harder when you're an adult. Most yeah. of the things that we learn, that's not the case, which I find very optimistic. Right, that I could you oh know, really, get better that is at- the case. That is the case, yeah. I mean, you know, if you wanted to, I don't know, pick up, um, you know, learning about astronomy, it, it's, you know, besides maybe the age of, you know, sort of 15, it's not any, you know, more more difficult than it was than when you were younger. But languages is one of those areas in which uh, there is shifts in, in the brain and, and we hear it in accents of, of people who may have moved when they were younger versus people who may have moved in their even in their their teens uh, so what makes learning a language so hard i mean in part it's both a memory issue where you have to memorize all these words uh, and then there's also these more complex things like grammar and, and syntax and mechanics uh, that that really do make it um you know incredibly 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 hard
0: well, and it's also, I guess, probably the repetition, right? I mean, you have to hit that stuff every day.
1: <laughs> you, you have to hit that stuff every day. Yeah. You know, one thing, though, that, you know, we were talking earlier about myths of, of learning, and uh, I really like to encourage people is that, you know, when it comes to repetition, it's really important not to repeat the same thing over and over again. So if you're practicing, uh, say, golf, The evidence is pretty clear that you should not take the same putt over and over again, that you're much better off what's called interleaving or doing mixed up practice. So you'd be better off uh, doing, you know, a forehand than a backhand and a forehand than a backhand if you're trying to get better at at tennis. And the same is is true for learning languages that, you know, not just repeating to yourself, you know, chow is the word for goodbye again and again, you know, using different, my Italian is non-existent, using different (laughs) words. Uh, and, and mixing it up is, is really important. And I find this one of these really surprising things because I go on YouTube and I see practices of whether it's star basketball players or star soccer players and are always doing the same move, like repetitively. And the research is very clear. You'd be much better off, um, mixing, mixing it up.
0: Well, I did read in your book, um, and I forget who it was, but I noticed he was a professor or worked at the University of Georgia, which is where I went to school, um, uh-huh. where he talked about he tried to do everything differently every day, like he shaved with his left hand, and then he tied his shoes differently. And he said there was like a finite number of ways to tie your shoe. He was sure of that. But yep. I thought, what a frustrating life this guy <laughs> this guy must lead to try and figure out how to do everything differently. And I'm sure that's not really the case but um what is the value in say if you're a guy shaving your face with your non dominant hand like what what does that do other than slow you down
1: (laughs) so his argument was less about practice but was more about creativity Uh and and i think it's an interesting point when you do everything the same way each day you do it because it's efficient and for some things like shaving your, you know, face, you you want to be efficient about that, or at least I want to. So I could really care less. But other things in my life that are more important to me, uh, you know, writing or engaging with my kids, you know, mixing it up allows things to be fresh, a little bit different. You think see things from a, a different perspective, and you know that can give new insights, new creativity, new innovation to something that, like driving to work, that if you do it the same day. It, Uh, the same day, day in, day out can get a little monotonous.
0: Yeah. What about, and I don't know if you covered this in the book, I don't remember about like time blocking and um, like how long are we capable of sitting down and active, even if we're using a little bit more of an active learning method, what are our limits as humans on efficiency? Like how long can we actually sit and learn something before we have to do something else?
1: You know, that's a great question. I tried to get to the bottom of that, and it was not totally clear that there is a (laughs) one set view on that. Um, And that to a degree makes sense, right? I mean, even when you're like really excited about something, um, you know, your mind sort of floats. Um, One thing that I think is clear is that. It's better to take little breaks and to return to something. So if you can do more to uh, break up your learning, mix it up, do it into shorter chunks. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, five minute chunks. uh, But, you know, if if you're mixing it up a little bit more, you're going to learn a little bit more because you're not going to be as rote, not going to be as, um, you know, just kind of doing something uh, the same way that you did it again and again. Um, and, and that breaking it up will force you to pay a little bit, a little bit more attention, but a lot of it's going to change by what type of field, what type of thing right, uh, right. you're doing and, um, and learning.
0: I was listening to an audio book about time blocking and I was cleaning out my closet while I was doing uh-huh. it. And the first, the guy was going into how to do the time blocking. You do 15 minutes on five minute break, 15 minutes on five minute break. And then I, I was cleaning out this other part of my closet. And then I hear him say, well, if that doesn't work for you, you can do 30 minutes, five minute, or 50 minutes, 10 minute." And, and then he just kept going. And I said, wait a minute. This guy doesn't <laughs> know what works. <laughs> like I literally stuck my head out of the closet and I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> like he had this whole thesis, like of how to time block. But really at the end of the day, I think it was, you got to do what works for your flow. You got to figure out what works for you.
1: Yeah. And I think it really, I'm going to admit that cleaning my closet is something that I would really don't want to do. And so for me, really, the big thing is getting over the hurdle of doing it. And then like once I kind of get in there and I kind of get in the flow of it, I should not be taking any breaks. Um, (laughs) While, you know, there's something, you know, I think when it comes to really when we think about practicing, you know, um, you know, let's just say uh, we're taking something like uh, swimming. You're Big, big on that, and mm-hmm. you know, you, you'd be better off doing sort of 20-minute chunks and being really focused on. Okay, you know, how am I holding my, cupping my palms and my hands to really improve uh, traction on that, and really focusing on that issue for a, uh, a smaller chunk of time, um, and then breaking it up and, and returning to that so you can really get into the, the flow of it. But I think you're 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 totally right that it depends on what the thing is and, and how you uh, need to approach it.
0: What do you think about learning devices and, you know, creating checklists and apps and all of this stuff to help us learn better? Where, where do you fall on that? What does the, the research show you?
1: Yeah, so if we're talking about things that help us plan, I think they can be incredibly useful. And in my mind, a, a checklist can be really helpful for that. So plotting out when you're going to do a certain activity whether it's, you know, we really want to apply ourselves to learning Italian finally this year. So <laughs> making sure, okay, we're just going to block off every Tuesday morning to to do that can be really helpful. Then there's the other side of whether or not technology can help us learn. So whether we're learning on YouTube or taking online classes. And there, you know, the evidence is a little bit more mixed. The one trend that I've seen is that for younger kids, and we're talking about kind of kindergartners, really younger kids, technology does not seem to be that beneficial, in part because they just don't have the focus and stamina. And so if you give them, say, an iPad, they're just excited to go play little games on it and do the things that kids are are going to, to do. And then as kids get older, there is evidence is more clear when it comes to kind of simulations and those types of online experiences Uh, can be really, really helpful. So I think to your question, just trying to separate out, oh, when are we doing using tools to measure, you know, how fast we're running or to videotape ourselves to see where we can get a little bit of a a bump in performance versus these types of things that we're uh, learning online or using some sort of app to... uh, to uh, improve our performance.
0: So I heard you mention kids. I have two uh, an 11 and they have homework. And when, what is something we can do as parents to help facilitate a better learning like environment and opportunity for our kids when it comes to homework? I mean, obviously that's a struggle. It's the bane of my existence. (laughs) I wouldn't even call it a struggle like math for, for the kids. I'm just like, Oh my gosh. And, and I really it, I guess too, because I was an English major and I just didn't really care about math that much. And, and now I've got a rising sixth grader and I swear my ability with math is pretty much <laughs> where he's at. So I'm going to have to learn as we go. But what is what are some things that we can do as parents to to make learning better for our kids, especially in the homework environment?
1: So um, one thing that I, I'd say is to use this what people call a growth mindset. And I think when it comes to math, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not a math person. Mm-hmm. And there's been some research that that really does transmit to our kids, especially if we do math with them. So if you start having that feeling of like, oh, I'm getting anxious doing math, or you feel like you're not a math person, that does transfer to your kids. So right. you might actually be better off just... not just lying
0: to them. I'm a great <laughs> mathematician.
1: <laughs> I, I will admit that I... um I my kids are are similar ages to to yours and um, I have convinced them uh, that I just love math and I'm i um, I'm not entirely sure how I've done it but it's it's one of those uh, <laughs> fibs that I've told like Santa Claus that um, yeah. you know they've managed to really engage. So on the homework front, I mean, I think you know just um, making it a discrete task uh, can really make a difference. So okay, tonight it's going to be a half hour. Or 45 minutes or whatever sort of seems reasonable, it's going to start here and end here, as opposed to uh, what happens, we've seen it happen in a lot of families, right, where it just sort of drags out over three hours and yeah. there's a lot more talk and a lot less action. The other thing that uh, I've seen a lot of success uh, with families is to get a, a tutor, and this doesn't have to be expensive. There are online math tutors for, you know, $10, 20 $30 an hour, or even just a, an older kid in the neighborhood. And, you know, that type of outsourcing, whether it's online or to another kid in the neighborhood, is nice because you just have less of that. You're, um, look, as we know, as parents, your kids complain to you more than they complain to anyone else. <laughs> And so any way to sort of change that dynamic, um, you know, I think uh, can be really, really useful. That's something that we do in, in our house um, and, and really just having like a we had like our fourth grader go with a sixth grader next door. And just because it was just a, it was just a little bit easier and it was fun for the sixth grader to to engage in, in that way are, are two things that we found really helpful.
0: That's awesome. Well, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do with those hours that contributes to our best health, happiness, and success. So my final question for you is, what is something that you do on a daily basis that you think makes your life just a little bit better?
1: Oh, I would just say spending time with my kids. I feel like it gives a, a sense of... Um... You know, that, that sense of, of socialness and, and, and familyness that I think can be so rewarding and also gives you a sense of that different perspective, you know, when mm-hmm. uh, you see kids and how they see the world is, is really refreshing. And that, that uh, certainly tops my list that really feels like um, that, that makes my 24 hours different.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I will put up the link to your new book, Learn Better. And maybe the next time we talk, um, I will have some Italian (laughs) to share. I highly doubt it. But thank you so much for your time.
1: Awesome. This was great. Thanks so much, Meredith.